Hi, I'm Rochelle Jackson, and this is The Crime Couch. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author, and I know who's who in the zoo. The crims, the cops, and the interesting individuals in between. So get comfy and join me here on The Crime Couch. It's going to be one heck of a journey. Kevin Collister claims he's from the School of Hard Knocks. But in saying that, he's also highly qualified, with more than 30 years' experience in the military, prisons and security and emergency services dog squad. Kevin's been an ADF infantry soldier and military policeman. He spent years dealing and managing with Australia's most dangerous criminals. As a lead defence tactics instructor, he's taught officers how to manage riots, hostage situations and high security escorts. When he was a military police officer, Kevin was awarded a commendation from the Queensland Government for negotiating with an offender who attacked a woman in a public park at night. As a result of all of his experiences, Kev started a company, Totally Proactive. They focus on a zero-harm approach to getting the best result. Hi, Kevin, and welcome to The Crime Couch. Thanks for having me, Rochelle. It's a pleasure. Let's have a little look at your history. Why did you join the ADF many years ago? What attracted you, Kev? Well, that's interesting. I started life as a sewing machine mechanic completely alien to what I do now. And I got up one day and I thought, there's got to be more to life than this. And basically I made a decision on one day, well, let's just join the army. So off to the army I went. So did you have anyone else in the army, in your family, or did you have any other ideas about it before you joined? My father was ex-British army, so that probably pushed me in that direction. But I was just looking for a challenge, something different. Yeah. What are your memories uh, of that night... You know, when you were a military officer, when that female was was being attacked in a park? Yeah, well, from my recollection, a friend of mine went past the park at night, coming to my place for a couple of beers, and he said, Kev, I heard a blood-curdling scream in the park. And I said, could have been kids playing. He goes, nah, nah, it was blood-curdling. I said, well, why didn't you go and do something? He said, you kidding? It's dark. Something's going on. So I said, let's go back. We went back to the park, and we couldn't find anyone. And I was calling out, and next thing I saw some movement in the bushes. This was a domestic, um, and this fellow actually had his hand over his wife's mouth, covering her, and uh, and she was bleeding profusely. She had a really bad cut on her head. So I went over and negotiated, and some physical force was used. I had to defend her, and um, took her to hospital, had her treated, and then provided evidence that so he was successfully prosecuted. So, yeah, it all happened pretty quickly. It's interesting because most members and most people in the in the you know the armed services or emergency services are rather humble, and they don't like uh, paying attention to what they've done or getting awards. So, how did you deal with getting officially recognised for that bravery you showed that night? Well, I didn't think that much of it. I was getting as much trouble as I was good things. So I guess it balanced it out a little bit. Yeah, you don't do those things for an award. Uh, you do them because it's the right thing to do. And if you've got the skills to do them, it makes it, well, a little more safe than if you hadn't. Why did you leave the ADF, Kev? What was calling you then? 
Well, interestingly enough, I wanted to change, and my time in the military was a peacetime, and that's what you want. We do not want wars. But I found that it was too politically correct. You have to dot I's, you have to cross T's. Um, for instance, we had the police briefing about some criminals that were supposed to be hitting an armoured car on military property, and it's federal property, so they said the military has to deal with it, or the Fed pol- um, so we dealt with it, and they were armed and potentially very dangerous crooks. And when we went to get our firearms, we got our issue 9mm pistol and I went to get some ammunition and I was told by my senior that you can't take ammunition with you. I said, you just sat through the briefing with me. These guys are dangerous. He said, too dangerous to carry ammunition. They'll see you train with, a, with an empty firearm. They don't know it's empty. That's the whack. So I thought, nah, that doesn't work for me. I did it and we weren't hit. They would have seen us and taken off. Um, but... Uh, I needed something more than that, yes. So I went out looking for something, and I didn't. I, didn't, I wanted a little bit, of, bit more lively, a little bit of action. So time to leave the military, and I loved dogs. I wanted to join the dog squad. Turned out the prison dog squad was easier to get into um, than the police dog squad. So I thought I'll join the prisons and see how I go getting in the dog squad. And in a very short space of time, I was successful, and then I went. You worked with the dog squad for some time in the prisons. What are the benefits of working with a dog, Kevin, as distinct from prison officers? Like if you're investigating or you're you're dealing with a difficult situation, what are the benefits of working with a dog? Dog spectacular. You're getting dressed, you go home, the dog becomes a pet. But you put your firearm on, you put your uniform on, the dog becomes a work dog. you got your best mate working beside you, unconditional love. Um, it's just spectacular. It's a lovely feeling. And then at the end of the day, you go home with your mate. So, yeah, I couldn't ask for much more than that. Kevin, what's one of the dogs that you became the most fond of? Have you got any particular fond memories of one dog? Yes, I absolutely do. There's a thing called the first dog syndrome, and it's real. You fall in love with your first dog. In my case, my first dog was spectacular. So, he didn't. Um, dogs would works all about retrieve. Exercise is all about a dog that will retrieve, uh, and this dog didn't wouldn't retrieve. And I thought, what have they given me? And I've got a, I'm a very patient individual, so they selected me to work with this dog. And one of their head trainers, who I respect immensely as a dog trainer, said, "Kev, this dog's got something in it I haven't seen before. You've just got to get it." So we persisted and persisted and persisted, and bang, he broke to it and became a fantastic dog. And his specialty was personal protection, attack, and person searches. Spectacular. What was, or is, the dog's name? Fritz. Fritz. And in the old pantry's days, they used to make um, number plates. And I went down and said, look, can you do me a favour and knock me out a number plate with Fritz's name on it? And we're going to be travelling around Australia in a caravan, and I found that old plate and I stuck it on the van. So, as a memory. That's a great memory. You've faced, Kevin, in your role in the prisons, you you faced armed offenders, you faced hostage situations and dangerous individuals. What's been, do you recall, the most dangerous and challenging situation? Yeah, well, there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot. Um, One that comes to mind is a a gentleman, an inmate named Greg Brazel. And um, I see a lot of qualities in Greg that I actually don't like him myself. But what happened was they started a new procedure for securing Greg in a cell. 
I didn't write it, and I was the head defensive tactics instructor. It was written by senior management, and it wasn't the safest way to go about it. He goes to the back of the cell, he kneels down, puts his hand behind his head, uh, and then we restrain him, and there's better ways to do it. So I went on this day, and I didn't really know Greg that well, and there was a scuffle, and physical force had to be used to restrain him. When we got him restrained and cuffed, he spoke to me um, in words that only he can use, and he very colourfully said to me, if we go through this again, I'm going to have my way with you. And I said, Greg, all you've got to do is do as I ask you to do, and we don't have to do it again. Well, little did I know the stage was set. Greg, triple murderer, armed robber, hostage taker, arsonist, very challenging individual, extraordinarily challenging, and quite dangerous. So Greg and I had run-in after run-in after run-in over years. Your, your listeners can't see, but I've got a bent finger. That's a little present from Greg. On one occasion, dealing with some inappropriate behaviour, he spat in my mouth, not once, but twice. I mean, that takes some skill. I was popping him in the back of an escort vehicle. He sat down on the back of the vehicle and kicked me in my knee, hyperextended my knee. He got my mother's and father's home address from the high security unit in this state, just playing with my mind. So we had all these run-ins. I got called in one day after hours with, with the unit. I was on standby, and Greg was threatening to set his cell on fire. I'm negotiating with him through a cell trap little where the meals go, and you can secure a prisoner. Uh, he's got his back to me. So, well, that's quite peculiar. He's probably got something, but what can he have in that cell? And he quickly turned around, he threw a glass jar at the cell trap, smashed into hundreds of shards. The only thing that saved me from serious injury, being blinded, uh, was my reflexes. So raised my hand, moved my head, the glass hit my cheek, my overalls, my hand, but didn't go in my eyes. Greg then proceeded to set his cell on fire because he thought, well, you'll have to open the door and then I will glass you. But I'm a little bit more highly trained than that and I waited, we applied chemical agents and smoke, which was already in there, and I didn't open the door until I could hear him in a prone position on the ground. I knew that we had the tactical advantage. I was able to remove him from the cell uh, without injury and secure him. I actually got accommodation for that as well. They've thrown these things away. But Greg turned out to be one of the best life skills coaches I've ever come across. I'm on the roof of a high security unit and Greg's in a yard, an exercise yard. He's separated from other prisoners. So they can't hurt him. He can't hurt them. And he looked up at him and he said, Mr. Collister, we're going to talk. Very serious. This is unlike Greg. And I said, well, what do you want to talk about? He goes, no, it has to be face to face. So this is too serious. And I said, I said, Greg, I'm all over the state. I work in all the prisons. When am I going to see you again? I said, look, if you've got something to say, just say it. And he thought for a moment. And he said, oh, I will. He said, I can't go on like this anymore. And I'm up there and I'm dumbfounded. What? What do you mean, Greg? What, you can't go on like what? He said, well, it's okay for you. You get to go home. You get to do whatever it is you do outside the prison. I don't get to go home. This is my home. He said to me, when I go to bed at night, all I can think of is you. He goes, I get up in the morning, and the first thing that gets in my mind is you. So I've got bigger fish to fry. I can't do it. What he didn't realise is this. I'd be at home, sunny day, kids, mates having a beer. It doesn't get much better than that. But I wasn't at the barbecue. I was stuck in that jail with Greg, telling my mates, if he ever does this, if he ever does that, I'm doing this. 
And they're saying to me, Kev, what are you doing? He's in jail. You're free. But I wasn't free. So I'm the instructor and he's the inmate. And I looked at him and said, what do we do? What's the answer? And he said to me, not the other way around, Mr. Collister, we can't make this personal anymore. He said, you and I have been attacking each other, accusations. It's not getting better, it's getting worse. He said, you can't change me, can you? I said, no, I can't. He said, I can't change you. So let's accept us for who we are. I get that. Come and do your job because I'm not going to stop doing what I'm doing. But when it's over, let it be over. So I said to him, well, I know I can do that. But my concern is, I don't know if you can do that. Exactly. And he said, I got no choice. This is doing my head in. I've got to depersonalize it. Now, the interesting thing was, I didn't feel better seconds later, hours later, days later. Felt like the whole world just left me. All my anger, my rage, my contempt for Greg was gone. Greg's doing what Greg does because of his nature and nurture, just like me. So he continued to do the job, but it wasn't personal. It's an extraordinary story. I was going to ask you, what do you do with that anger? Because I was even feeling angry, even hearing about what he was doing to you. How do you deal with those emotions when you're dealing with such challenging people? And I'm sure there'd be many that wouldn't have that foresight, and I dare I even say that that intelligence that Greg Brazel had. He is a very intelligent individual, a very challenging one. Well, drink, um, drinking poison and expecting someone else to get sick, that's the same as getting angry. So the thing is, we've got to put the anger down. And what Greg taught me, and study did too, but, but Greg more than anyone, he pushed me to a point where I was ready to do just about anything, as he was. So it's, it's real big insight. So I understand now that nothing has any meaning except that which we attach to it. It's not good or bad, it's just a thing. We decide how we react to things, and it's our reactions that give the things their meaning. So that little insight with Greg didn't just affect our relationship, it actually affected pretty much everything in my life and the way I did my job. How did dealing with him affect your negotiations with other prisoners? Did that have an effect? Absolutely. Now, people say, well, what, you're going to trust him? No, I'm not going to trust Greg. Greg is not a trustworthy person. He's responsible for the consequences of his actions. But when you get angry at one person, even if you try to use the correct words, your body language and your tonality is saying to the next person you're dealing with, I don't like you. And in jails, respect is everything. If an inmate feels, regardless of their behaviour, they've been respected, there's a chance of a good outcome. If they believe they've been disrespected, there's a chance of a violent outcome. So and Greg assisted in teaching me that, which I knew, but you have to live it. You have to really live it to believe it. So what's he doing now? Where is, uh, where is this individual now? I haven't got a clue. I'm assuming he's still in jail. He applied for parole. Um, maybe a couple of years ago or so, I think he's still in. And hopefully he's mellowing as he gets older. Greg Brazel had an enormous uh, impact on you. Did you have an impact on him and did he change his behaviour? Because he's claiming that he was, but did he? He, he didn't change his behaviour in the sense that um, he, he challenges authority. That's what he does. But what he did do to me one day, he said, Mr Collis, if we're out of jail... You and I could sit and have a beer together, and I think he absolutely meant it. So it changed that part of the relationship. I actually said, that might be a bit of a stretch, Greg, but I get what he meant. I get what he meant. A lot of similarities. I did a, a, a two-week emergency response course in, in New South Wales. Shooting, carrying logs, fighting. I loved it. 
And at the end of the course, everyone gets awards. And they, they awarded me a rusty hacksaw blade. They stole one or liberated one of my white singlets and they all signed it because they like me. I was actually seriously awarded the person most likely to be imprisoned. Absolutely. And I said, you're kidding because I'm probably better than most of you guys. They said, no, because you go too hard. <laughs> and they said, this is the statewide emergency response unit. They said, if you get in prison, Kev, don't do it in New South Wales. We don't want to deal with that. So there you go. So there's similarities. What you're really saying then is the people that monitor the prisoners are actually not that different from the prisoners themselves. That's a rather disturbing revelation, isn't it? Yeah. Well, there but for the grace of God go I. I've had the fortune of training fisheries, forest, catchment management, animal health, sheriff's officers, an emergency response unit in the Solomon Islands. People are just people. If I'm training a bus company, they expect me to train them differently than I would a law enforcement person, but I don't. Communication is communication. Every single time we interact with another human being, there's a relationship. If we spend a few seconds um, on developing the relationship component of the communication process, generally you can get by with just about anyone. So it doesn't matter. People are people. You're talking now about the power of words and empathy. And it's something which I know I do as a journalist and when I interview people. But... Tell me about the power of words and altruism or caring for others. How do these apply in a dangerous situation? Well, they are, they're, they're an integral part. So what happens is, in a nutshell, and we could spend hours talking about this, but in a nutshell, empathy is the ability to identify with and understand another person's point of view. You do not have to agree with it. Whereas sympathy, there's a level of agreement. You might be completely in agreement. That's not going to work. So it means if I can empathise with somebody, truly empathise with them, it's a social lubricant. Now what happens is people don't probably understand that the physical threat is fight or flight, they get that. Um, I'm, acting, I'm acting on a real or an imagined threat and the limbic system kicks in, the parasympathetic nervous system kicks in, adrenaline, noradrenaline. The brain looks at respect exactly the same way, especially if I'm alcohol affected, drug affected, emotionally disturbed, just got a bad temper. If I feel disrespected, then part of the brain shunts this information off to a central unit um, which acts as fight or flight. So that means they become violent or yell and scream. Well, empathy enables you to override that. If I can absolutely empathise with, identify with and understand that you see the world differently from me, then it means that the information gets to the neocortex, um, the thinking part of the brain, which has the ability to manage your emotions more effectively. It's more objective and less subjective. So empathy, if you practice it, enables you to communicate far more effectively in stressful environments. How do you explain your zero harm or your peace approach, which I think is underpins all your company's work, I understand? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I learnt this in the military, but more so in the prisons. Um, this, this approach is quite simply this, that communication is a fundamentally powerful tool. Respect is a fundamentally powerful tool. So we talk about, it's actually personal empowerment. It's taking responsibility for your actions and your reactions. And, and we call it cause and effect. Some people go around spending their lives saying, it's not my fault, my boss is this, it's not my fault, the inmate's that, it's not my fault because my wife is this. I get it. You can articulate that's the case. Other people, either through learning or just living life, say, no, I am responsible for me. 
I'm responsible for me. And I'm responsible for my actions and my reactions. So that means if I'm responsible for me and something's going wrong, um, I can fix it. If it's someone else's fault, I can't fix it. So it's really, really stressful. And here's a little story about a bird in a cage. Because some people can't take this on. I'm not going to respect someone who's abusive. And I get that. There's a little bird trapped in a cage. And he can't get food when he wants it. He can't get water when he wants it. He can't get out of the cage. He's trapped. This little bird lives this life in effect. It's not my fault. Another bird in another little cage is trapped. But it lives its life at cause. I am responsible for what happens to me, at least partially. The difference between those two birds is this. The bird that lives its life at effect blames everyone else and will never get out of the cage. The bird that lives its life at cause is not asking why is life so unjust. How do I fix these injustices? And it will see the cage door open up every single day. Every day, the bird has an opportunity to rectify the issues it's facing. If we live our life at cause, we're empowered. If we live our life at effect, we're disempowered. One's stressful, one's rewarding. So basically, that's um, a large part of the concept of the training. What you're ostensibly saying is we're res- we can't control the situation, but we can control how we respond to that situation. You can, yep. And certainly knowledge conquers fear, so obviously acquiring knowledge in any particular area is going to assist you. But yeah, Harvard did a study. Um, this is all going to improve relationships, and life is all about relationships. Basically, in a nutshell, their study, which went for about seven years, come up with this. A person's quality of their life, their happiness, their safety, um, their well-being physically, is determined by many factors, but probably the biggest factor is relationships. People at the end of their life who say, you know, generally speaking, I had good relationships. We can extrapolate to say every time I meet another human being, there's a relationship. If the overwhelming majority of those are positive, you are going to have a rich, rewarding life. If the overwhelming are negative, you're going to get to the end and say, this was miserable. Can I have another crack at it? And unfortunately, uh, no, no. Kev, you've learned so much. What do you fear now? I actually don't fear anything. No. I think I can manage most things that come my way, and if I can't manage them, there's no worries, no problem about worrying about it. It's going to take its course. I don't know. I must have fear, but now I feel self-assured. I feel relaxed. I've dealt with a hell of a lot of things in my life. I've got out of them, including a, you know, um, a guy who's recently out of jail, a drug addict trying to kill me with a knife. Um, now I, I, I look forward to life. We just bought a caravan. We're going to travel around this country. I'm going to continue training online teaching but um no i can't say i've got any fears kev why did you create your company totally proactive when i was working for the sesg the dog squad my role was to teach them a whole range of emergency procedures rewrite the the policy and procedure and what they did was they sent me out to teach other agencies sheriffs fisheries forests and it generated the income for our unit we can buy better firearms better radios better training we had a change of government or a change of heart in the government. They said, hang on, you can't send blokes out making money for your unit. That's consolidated revenue. That's our money. So they pulled the pin. My boss said, well, I'm not going to send you out to make money for the state government. We're not doing any other external training. And agencies, sheriffs, fisheries, wildlife, they said, we love your training, Kev. Would you, would you think about quitting? And I love the dog swat. And the saddest things are those that might have been. I thought, you know, I have to give this a go. And I quit. Bang, that took me in that direction and I'm still there. 
How do people in white-collar organisations and popular culture, how do they deal with the concepts that you're bringing to them? Generally speaking, they love it. And right across the board, the general feedback is excellent. These are just life skills. It's personal empowerment, putting the, the person dealing with the client or the customer or the offender, um, putting yourself in a better position so you, you feel more comfortable about dealing with a challenging behaviour. Because that behaviour doesn't have any meaning on its own. We give it its behaviour. So in general terms, it's really well accepted. I think also what you're saying is you create your own reality. I'm sorry to sound a little bit like Oprah, but is that really what you're saying? You absolutely create your own reality. There's no question about that. Um, Nothing has any meaning, as I said, except that which we attach to it. I was in Queensland. I was military police. I was boxing. Um, It was before lunch. I hadn't had a drink. And I'm singing. I didn't even know I was singing. And uh, two police officers heard the noise, and I cannot sing, believe me. So they must have thought, what the heck is going on in that subway? Well, one of them come down with an inquisitive look on his face as if to say, I wonder what's going on here. The other one come down with an aggressive look on his face to say, listen, don't create create that sort of a havoc in our subway. One come down looking for someone to talk with to determine what's going on. One come down looking for a bad guy. Well, guess what? He got his bad guy. As soon as, with, with my limited knowledge at that stage, as soon as I saw his aggressive, angry face, he didn't even identify himself as a police officer because he was so angry because of the way I looked at him. With two egotistical fools, he drives a finger into my chest, tells me to shut up a little bit more colourfully. I put him in an armbar, threw him up against the subway, grabbed him by the throat, and then his mate pulls his badge out and says, we're, we're police and you're under arrest. Now, I'm responsible for that. But having said that, one officer went down looking for the bad guy. And if you get an egotistical young bloke like me, you're going to get a bad guy. So, yeah, it's about empowering yourself so that you can deal with those, those encounters. Yeah. What advice would you give, Kev, to someone who's facing a, a, you know, a difficult person or a challenging situation? What advice would you give to them? Well, I'd give to them um, the advice to say this. Knowledge conquers fear. Acquire as much knowledge about agencies that can help you, organisations that can help you. It might be that you need to do something in a physical sense to make yourself better. We've always got the ability to leave, although in domestic relationships that's generally the most dangerous point. I would say be empowered. Be empowered to affect personal change. And if possible, try not to judge the person that you're dealing with, um, but certainly you're not going to accept that inappropriate behaviour. There's lots of people out there to help us. And... What's your future then, Kev? You, you said you're continuing with your company and you're off on a caravan. Yes, absolutely. We've sold up everything and bought a caravan, bought a car. We're going to travel around this beautiful country and, um, and hopefully do some online training to assist people, put them in a better place. So it's a beautiful world. If you see it as a beautiful world, and it's an ugly place, if you see it as an ugly place. Well, I choose to see it as a, a beautiful, caring place and that's the world that I live in. Well, Kev, it's been an absolute pleasure sitting with you and your beautiful self uh, on the crime couch today. It's been a pleasure being here. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for joining me. I'm Rochelle Jackson, and I look forward to your company next time on the crime couch.